Welcome to Every Step Podcast. I'm Christina Weston. And I'm Judith Beck. Every Step is the podcast where career and life meet. With a new guest every episode, we explore the gutsy issues affecting everyone in the workplace. Today we are joined by Dr. Christy Goodwin, an expert in digital well-being, and we're discussing how to manage digital distractions and improve productivity. Christy, welcome. I'm so excited, and I can't tell you how excited I am about your book, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk. I mean, what a great title. And you know what? Are we losing our communication skills? Oh, I think technology is having a profound impact on all of us. Um, I often see it as a double-edged sword. I think technology can certainly connect us and empower us to communicate in totally different ways. But in saying that, we are also communicating in much more truncated ways. You know, we're communicating mm. with emojis. Um, we're using acronyms that often our colleagues don't even understand what we're writing. So it's TLCs, really- yeah, lots of TLCs. Yes. Another one, yeah, three-letter acronyms. Yes. And I was speaking to a solicitor recently who said there are actually some legal cases taking place here in Australia because people have used emojis with pure, um, sincere intentions, but because there's sometimes some ambiguity, those emojis have been misconstrued um, and misrepresented. So we are communicating in radically different ways. So yes, I think it can connect us. It can enable us to communicate in, in really powerful ways. But the flip side is that if we're always tethered to technology, if we're always using short form communication, it means that we're connecting and um, communicating in radically different ways. So it's a really interesting juncture at time, I think is the simple yeah. answer to that question. This whole oh, that's thing amazing. Because if you look at if you look at emojis these days, I mean, there's like mountains of them now. And yes. so you're right, you do have to look at one says, oh, you're crying, one, one you think it's crying, but no, they're laughing. <laughs> and isn't it kind of like the tone we used to talk about where when you would give someone a directive they'd go oh it's not what you're saying it's how you're saying it and then that would throw somebody off but now it's all on you know the text the tone doesn't sound right or the all caps all caps why are you screaming at me Yes, or the prolific use of exclamation marks or the bold and the underline that we adopt. So I agree it is and it's changing how we communicate. The other thing is that we are not only just, you know, in years gone by, most business communication was predominantly email. But thanks to the pandemic and having distributed teams, we've become much more reliant on other communication and collaboration tools like Teams chats and Slack and WhatsApp messages and Skype messages. And that has completely changed how people are communicating. You know, they are using those emojis. There's become a lot more colloquial language. The the formal, you know, introduction to emails that we had to have aren't in those other forms of communication. So we're seeing huge shifts um, and I often say what we're seeing in, in all regards to technology is that technology is growing and changing at exponential rates. The problem is we have ancient paleolithic brains. Our brains have not evolved to cope with these constant digital demands that we're all facing. So again, we're at a really interesting point of time where as humans, we haven't really evolved that much, but the technology that we're all so reliant on has radically shifted even in a very, very short period of time. And what's really interesting as humans, one of our fundamental needs is to have a connection, a human connection, and to build a level of intimacy so that you can have trust, trust in business, 
trust to 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 engage in 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 business and to work together and if we're having this truncated itsy bitsy shorthand emoji filled are we actually building trust or are we losing the art of intimacy it's all transactional I think it is changing how we we build relationships and I completely agree. I, I actually believe that our most foundational psychological need as humans is the need for connection. Um, you may be familiar with self-determination theory and self-determination theory says as humans, we really only have three basic psychological needs. We want to connect, we want to feel competent and we want to feel like we're in control, that we have some autonomy. And technology has completely changed how we connect. Yes, it can be a positive thing. Um, you know, this is why social media, why group chats, why multiplayer video games for children and teens have become so incredibly popular. They've tapped into that biological, you know, basic psychological need that we are hardwired for relational connection. This is also why we find it so hard to ignore our colleague's email at 10 p.m. at night when our boss sends us a message at 3 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon about an irrelevant or a rather insignificant issue, we feel compelled to reply. Yeah, because always on, always on, yeah. always responding to that drug called the ding. Yeah. Okay. So why are we even getting into, why are we even looking at our emails? Our, our, like the weekend is our, should be our sanctuary to wind down and to, you know, sort of just have a break with our family and that type of thing. But we're still compelled to look at that phone or hear that ding or that email. Christina and oh, I were talking about know, this. We might miss out on something. We like might we miss out. out on something or or someone sends some sends an email and you you feel like you're supposed to respond because they're they're a client um or they're your boss or something like that and but you think well no hold on a second this is my time <laughs> I shouldn't have to respond till Monday morning yeah what you're describing is a really huge issue and we're beginning in some states in Australia um, and internationally to see legislation in this this space um colloquially it's being referred to as the right to disconnect and teachers people Teachers in Queensland just had in their enterprise bargaining agreement um, restrictions around having almost permission to switch off after hours. Amazing. The Victorian police force passed in their agreement conditions around the right to disconnect after work hours. We've wow. seen it in some European countries who were doing this years before the pandemic because people were recognising that we need to digitally disconnect. We are not, as humans, biologically designed to be switched on processing information all the time. As I said before, we have these ancient brains and our brains are designed to go and forage and hunt and get information. But in today's digitally demanding world where information is just constantly being thrust at us, we're not designed to have that constant barrage. And so yeah. we need to switch off. Um, we're it's not no designed. Wonder we're exhausted. It's no wonder you know we're all screaming burnout. You know, the funny oh. thing is that, is that the, the companies, because a lot of companies will will say, we don't want, you know, they'll have on their emails, don't answer this email between this time and that, I'm sending this, that type of thing. And so you've got one where you've got the company issue. And so if the companies are coming on board and trying to say, no, you're going to burn out, but then there's the social issue of, yeah, I'm not going to answer my uh, work emails, but hey, I'm going to be on Instagram for two hours today and read all these articles. And then I got to go to Facebook and I got to like the same photo that my friend put out on Instagram and Facebook. And then I got Twitter and then I do that as well. So 
you're socially exhausted. Oh, and then I'm depressed because I didn't get invited to the party that everybody went to and they threw pictures out there. And it's like, and then you're depressed and you're thinking, I didn't tune off at all on the weekend. Yeah. I, I just tuned into something different. How do you get, mm. what was in your book? What surprised you during doing your book the most about what you found out, you know, as far as what people are doing? Was there something in there that you found out some research or um, that really surprised you? Yes, I'm going to be honest. I stumbled across this. So I started writing the book and as the research started to emerge and I became immersed in, in the, the data that I was looking at, I realized that our, I think there's two things happening that's making people feel, as you both have described, digitally depleted. We're feeling overwhelmed. In the book, I, I use the term ousted. People are overwhelmed. They're under the pump. They're stressed. They're time poor. They're exhausted and distracted. And I believe our tech habits, both professionally and personally, and let's face it, the two have become so enmeshed in recent it's years, you know, those boundaries have become obliterated. But I believe it is our tech habits that are doing two things. The first thing that our tech habits have done is they've introduced a whole range of tiny little micro stresses. Now, these seem really benign, but they're not. Things like alerts, notifications, video calls, um, multitasking, looking at a screen. When we look at a screen, we activate our sympathetic nervous system. This is our stress response. Why? We're biologically designed so that when we have a very narrow view, we trigger the stress response. We get we shut off our peripheral vision and we're laser focused. This sends a message to our brain that we're in this heightened stress state. So we've added these little micro stresses, and again, on their own, they would seem quite benign. You know, you can't tell me that I'm going to get stressed from a Teams notification. But our brain actually cannot differentiate between a Teams notification pinging on our phone and a tiger chasing us. Mm. They're both perceived by our brain as an external threat or a potential threat because it makes a noise, it often vibrates, there's some illumination of our screen. And so this triggers that stress response. So the first thing is we've got all these tiny little micro stresses that are accumulating. The second thing that's happened, I believe, is that our digital habits, again, professionally and personally, have completely eroded some of the most basic biological buffers that mm. used to naturally be baked into our days that helped us manage feeling stressed and helped us manage our focus and our attention. Getting out, getting out into nature, grounding. Yes, time in sunlight. Um, we're more sedentary than we've ever been. Um, we're not getting enough sleep or good quality of sleep. Um, we are breathing, believe it or not, ladies, we are breathing in radically different ways when we're on our screens. Mm. Um, a, a study that was published whilst I was writing the book and could include it told us that as humans, we are actually biologically designed to sigh every five minutes. Humans have always done this. Um, we do it and we're completely oblivious that we're doing it. Now, I'm not talking about the very melodramatic, you know, just the, you've got a teenager. The, it's, it's too just the out breath, just the yeah, out breath, too. pushing out of carbon dioxide. Exactly. Yeah, so it's our body's way of regulating our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. Now, normally we do this roughly every five minutes. We're unaware that we're doing it. It brings us back to a baseline of stress. When we look at a screen... Research now tells us that our sigh rate falls off the cliff. We don't sigh anywhere near as much. What does this tell us? We're not breathing. We're not we breathing. breathing. That Believe amazing? it or not. Yeah, a study was done. I think it was in 2008. So this has been substantiated for a long period of time. Linda Stone coined the term email apnea. Believe it or not, when we go into our inboxes, we hold our breath. We dump a whole lot of cortisol. Our heart rate accelerates. Our pupils dilate. We have a physiological response. 
Again, these two things combined, the increase in microstresses and almost the diminishing of these biological buffers is almost, I don't know, like a, a digital superstorm or a collision for people feeling that overwhelmed, stressed, exhausted and distracted. That's fascinating because breath is just so critical to managing stress. And Over what's going to our so eyes critical. as well, what our oh, sight what? We've seen that in the last five years, um, some um, optometrists were tracking rates of myopia. So myopia is nearsightedness. We have seen an alarming increase in children, teens and adults in the last five years. One theory is that we're spending a lot more time looking at our screens, but an Australian study has actually said there's a more plausible explanation. And it's what we call the displacement effect. For every hour that we're spending looking at our laptop, our phone, our tablet, our desktop computer, we're not spending it outside mm. and we're not quite sure what the mechanism is. Is it that when we're outside, is it the vitamin D that's helping to elongate um, our optic nerve and that's what's stopping that myopic progression? That's one plausible explanation. But another theory is that when we're outside, we naturally gaze off into the distance. We dilate our gaze. We look at the bird in the distance. We watch the waves crashing into the shore. We look at the ball that our kids have kicked that's hurtling towards our head. So we're spending our days inside looking at a very short view and we're not getting that sunlight and that time outside. So the good news is that the remedy, the solutions to these digital dilemmas, they're not complicated. They really aren't. We just have to do what I say. We've got to start working within our biological blueprint. As humans, unfortunately, we have some biological constraints. We are not machines. We're not That's designed... But as yep. society, we're addicted. So, you know, I, I look at so many people around me and in particular kind of the younger generation and they're so addicted to, to digital. It is an addiction. And I think the, the science around um, apps and the dings and everything, it's all very, very clever um, gamification that's used in, in gambling environments. So this is an addiction. How do we wean you know, I worry about children, and I know you've done a lot of work with children. I worry about how do we wean ourselves off? How do we make it okay to put it down and lock it away and go outside and look at the sunshine, look at the waves and take a few deep breaths? Because that's that practical aspect of, I've, you know, if, if, I don't, if, I'm not, if I'm not holding on, if I'm not already always on, I'm going to miss out on something to letting it, putting it down. How do we put it down? It's really hard. I'm the first to say this. Um, and the, I will share with you the reason I'm so passionate about this particular topic is because several years ago, um, I became so digitally distracted. I'd been overseas delivering a keynote, landed back in Sydney and stood at the baggage terminal and pulled out my phone, as most people did. And I had 77 unread emails land in my inbox from the flight from Singapore. I thought I'll triage those in the taxi ride home fell asleep in the taxi, got home. And my middle son, that was the first time we'd been apart from each other for two nights. So he needed some extra mummy cuddles that day. Now I'd ambitiously planned a work call um, during his expected or anticipated nap time. So I opened the lid on my laptop to send one email just to cancel the work call and so I couldn't attend. I became so digitally distracted that I wasn't watching my son and he fell off the lounge face first requiring urgent hospitalization. Now, to ease my mother's guilt, and I can see both of your responses, I will declare he'd done the exact same thing two weeks prior when my husband was dutifully supervising him. So I'm just going to suggest it was a reopening of an existing wound. But as somebody who researches and studies this, 
I'm not immune to the digital pull. I got sucked into the digital vortex. And as you've both said, the, the technology we all use, you know, whether it's our phone, our laptop, even our work technologies like Slack and Teams and emails, they have designed to be captivating and alluring. They have been designed to draw us in. Um, when we're online, spend, time there. spend more yeah. time there. Yes. Um, one of the key things they use is something called the well, the autoplay feature, the fact that one video rolls into the next on Netflix, on Stan, on our social media platforms, forces us to enter something called the state of insufficiency. We're never going to feel done. We'll never feel complete. There's always another level, another message, another post, another news site. And we don't feel good enough scroll. either. Yeah, no, we don't feel we, good enough. We compare and despair, and we often talk about this as an affliction for young people, that they're comparing their reality to, you know, peers and influences. I'm seeing this with adults, people who are comparing their reality with other friends, colleagues. Um, that compare and despair phenomenon is it's really unhealthy. So these technologies, and you described it before, they, they these platforms professionally and personally that we all use, use a technique called intermittent variable rewards. So if we knew that every 28 minutes and 15 seconds, there'd be something interesting in my inbox or in my Teams chat, I wouldn't go in and keep checking. But it's that unpredictable reward ratio that gets us hooked onto constantly checking. And it has become a really unhealthy digital dependence for many of us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we use our phones. There's a term called um, toilet tweeting. We literally are using our <laughs> smartphones in the bathroom. Research says it's 47 I'll draw the line there. I'll draw the line there. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. I definitely draw the line there. <laughs> but I know what you're talking about. My husband would call it the library. <laughs> <laughs> but so how do we wean ourselves off? Because, you know, do you go, is it like a drug? Because we are addicted. Do you go cold turkey? Do you just introduce new micro habits that become yeah. more sustained? How how do we actually become healthier? Because if we continue like this, we're not going to have the human connection. We're yeah. going to have massive productivity issues. And, and I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about productivity issues because I think there's some real impacts there. But we're going to be sad and miserable and we're going to have mental health issues and be burnt out and... And at the end of the day, we have to take personal responsibility for this. We can't expect somebody else to fix us. We have to fix ourselves. So We do. And we can't keep deflecting the blame to the tech companies. You know, we Correct. can keep, oh, they've made these addictive and I can't put it down. We can't wait for governments to legislate or Correct. make changes. This isn't going to happen. So my first piece of advice is if you haven't watched The Social Dilemma, please mm. watch it. Um, yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, these devices that we all are reliant on have been engineered um, to be addictive and appealing. So what I often say is that we have to create some digital borders and boundaries. We have to create what I colloquially refer to as our digital guardrails. We have to come up with where are we going to use technology? What are our no-go tech zones? Um, what places and spaces will I use my phone? Um, we know, for example, when we're working, if we can see our smartphone, this is from a study from the University of Austin, Texas, if our phone is in our line of sight, even if it is on silent and even if it is face down, if we can see our smartphone, it has a significant, it's estimated to be around 10% impairment on our cognitive functioning. Wow. Put bluntly, seeing your phone makes you 10% dumber. It is literally a brain drain. 
the solution is simple. You know, pop your phone in a drawer, pop it somewhere where you can't see it when you need to get that focused work done. Um, have some guardrails. You know, do you switch off your electronic devices as you should in the 60 minutes before you go to sleep? Um, have you got a digital depot in your house where the phones and the tablets and the laptops go at night so you can switch off? Um, so I think we have to come up with those borders and boundaries. Then we have to start to introduce some micro habits. So it's not about going and I'm the first to say digital detoxes don't work. The research overwhelmingly tells us that they don't create sustainable long-term changes. What they end up doing is they create a binge and a purge cycle. So we go offline for a couple of days and then we come back and we like catch detoxing up on. for diets. It's, it's exactly. Like psychology is exactly. food, dieting. And a particular study looked at when people did a full digital detox versus people that just cut down their smartphone use by between 30 and 60 minutes. And overwhelmingly, the cohort of people who just dropped down their smartphone use by that 30 to 60 minutes had sustainable changes in their digital habits six to 12 months after the initial intervention. So I think it's about then crowding it out and understanding what do I need as a human what are these basic biological needs? And it's not an anti-tech message. I'm not telling you to digitally amputate yourself. It's about, well, how can I use technology? But how can I use it in ways that is that are aligned, that are congruent with how my brain and body needs to operate and then bringing those technologies back in? So I think it's the borders and boundaries. I think we have to crowd it out um, rather than just going on a detox, implement other things that we enjoy doing and go back to what it is it that we need as humans for optimal performance. You know, it's funny because it's um, it's almost like, well, again, with there's, there's sort of two, two rules of engagement. You have your social and then you have your work. But in a work environment, if you think about it, all these young graduates going into their first job, they're not going to know unless they are mirroring their boss or their colleagues or whatever. So the company in some sense has to be able to train them on what is the business etiquette yeah. of digital. And, and when, yeah. when they come into a meeting, I mean, I I know even you, when I was running FRG, people would come into a meeting and I would say the phones have to be turned off. I didn't know that because I was happy with them turning them, the phone over. Um, but that's, that even takes it one more yeah. one more step because my view was if you're not present in this meeting it becomes a business risk and 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 but they're not going to know unless the leader actually defines those parameters especially the young ones coming in if they're not being trained on what's acceptable during the, the a work environment or what's going to help them what's going to hinder them as well and it's kind of like that does kind of put the onus on the training to the company in some some way as well because they're not going to get it they're not going to get it at school because the schools are only just starting now like at the lower levels to uh, have no no phone um no phones during school and they're locking them up before they come in but not all schools are doing that so there's going to be differences there's massive business risk. Um, there was a recent story, I'm not sure whether you saw it, where a, a top criminal barrister was caught on Tinder when he was defending his client in a in a major legal case and it, and it made headline news. I mean, fancy being on Tinder when you're defending somebody or you're at a sentence, sentencing hearing. I mean, that's just, where's the etiquette? Where and I think he's being sanctioned. I'm, I'm not quite sure what's happened, but... Um, that's amazing. That would be ex-lawyer. <laughs> 
barrister after that happened if that was if I, I was hiring him that's unbelievable yeah. And I think what you're both describing, we are seeing. I'm doing a lot of work with corporate teams and they're saying they are recruiting the most intelligent, academically able people out of university and the one skill that they're lacking is focused attention. And so I often talk, I believe there's a, a new super skill of the 21st century for new graduates, for team leaders, for the C-suite. And it's a skill that I think is far more important than our IQ our intelligence, a skill that is far more, I think it supersedes our EQ, our emotional intelligence. The super skill of the 21st century is going to be your FQ. And yes, I have to be very careful how I say that <laughs> one. Um, oh yes, there's been a few Freudian slips in the past. Your focus quotient. If you cannot control, direct and orient your attention, you are going to get lost in a world that is barking for your attention, that has been engineered to hijack your attention. So companies are recognizing this. They're saying we're seeing this with our younger staff, but we're seeing it with our, our leaders. You know, research told us that during the pandemic, most people on virtual meetings were multitasking. As you've identified, that's a huge risk in terms of our focused attention. We know that when we multitask, our brain releases cortisol, the stress hormone. We um, burn through glucose, our brain's energy supply, and we also send information to the wrong part of our brain. Instead of it going to our brain's hippocampus, which is the brain's memory center or the hard drive of the brain, when we are multitasking, information bypasses our hippocampus and goes to the striatum. So we're not going to retrieve information from an important meeting or data that we need to retain and have it at our ready if we're constantly being distracted. So our decision-making capability is severely impaired and we are at risk of making bad decisions. Huge. Uninformed huge. decisions. Yes, why are yep. the but why are the leaders in those meetings? Is that that's the one thing that always drives me nuts when I, you know, sort of like, why are they accepting that behavior? If they're having a, a meeting on Zoom and half of them don't have their camera on and the yep. other half are tapping away or writing things, but there's someone who is actually leading that meeting or brought that meeting forward and they're not saying anything about it, and they're letting they're accepting the behavior as a manager, I just think they wouldn't accept that behavior if they were face to face and somebody was sitting there writing something else or doing something. So why are they, why is it acceptable online or through the digital or are they just becoming lax? They just becoming like, oh, well, we're all under stress. You know, this meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting is just another meeting. Another conflict <laughs> I have to have. If I have to have another difficult conversation, that depletes yeah. my energy some more. So I'll just let it go to the keeper. I won't yeah. deplete any more of my emotional energy. It's already depleted. Yeah, I think we have become lax. Um, I think it's become the lowest common denominator. We've almost accepted, oh, well, we, we just multitask or we constantly go from back-to-back -back Zoom meetings. So I'm really pleased. I'm working with a lot of forward-thinking organisations and we're co-constructing what we're calling their digital guardrails. We're coming up with the digital norms, practices and principles that are underpinned by neuroscience, that are underpinned in human psychology. How do we work best in this digital context? And when I work with teams, I often do a really fun, simple experiment. It's a multitasking experiment because a lot of people, and I will say it tends to be females more than males who say, I can multitask. You're wrong, Christy. I can be sitting in the Teams meeting and triaging my inbox or my Teams chat at the same time. I'm adept at that. And this really simple experiment where you time yourself and you do some monotasking, so you do one thing at a time, 
and then you repeat the task, but in trial two, you you multitask and two things happen. The first thing that happens in this experiment is that the duration between task one and two blows out. When we multitask, it actually takes us around 50% longer. Even though we think we're being efficient, wow. that constant task switching is cognitively exhausting. It's, it's, it's draining. The real second thing that happens, I find fascinating, is that our error rate increases when we multitask. We make omissions. We reverse numbers. Now, if you're working with large numbers, you are working with decimal points, um, you are doing anything that requires some really focused attention, you just cannot multitask. Um, and we know that error rates usually increase by around 40% when we multitask. So we can't outperform these biological constraints. And again, I think it's a part um, of, of explaining, you know, we cannot physiologically, biologically, we're incapable of multitasking um, and equipping people with these brain-based insights so that we can start to work in these hybrid or digital ways um, that really will support us rather than stifle us as it's doing now. And I guess you need to also need, you know, need to know what the time wasters are within your digital world oh. as far as going, okay. I was telling Christina the other day that, um, I mean, I have a big family and and um, they tend to send articles and things like that, like especially during election times. <laughs> and I actually calculated one time that a, a member of my family who was sending stuff out, that if I actually would have read the article, articles that they were sending, I would have wasted eight hours that week in just reading stupid little articles, sorry, <laughs> my sister's listening, but stupid little articles about stuff that really um, is irrelevant. You know, I could, if I want that information, I can go and get it, but you kind of go, this is what happens. We're getting stuff. And if we actually read it, because a lot of people share stuff, but they don't yeah. even read themselves. They just go, yeah. oh yeah, that, this happens, that looks yeah, fine. This happens in the workplace too. People, people yeah. share articles and rather they've read it, and rather than giving you an executive summary of the highlights, they just flick it on and they feel like they've done you a huge service. But it's yeah. like, just give me the just give me the cliff notes. Just give me the two seconds yeah. as to why I should read it. Otherwise, I'm reading it and it's actually not relevant. I don't even know why they've sent it to me. Yeah. You know, this happens a lot. This is rife. And a um, study done in 2018 actually wanted to quantify how much is digital distraction costing organizations. So it was a study done in the US. I think we'd replicate the findings globally if we were to, to re reproduce the study. This particular study found that distractions were costing um, workplaces. The average employee cost was around $35,000 per employee in lost productivity. Wow. About 28% of the workday was attributed to distractions, be that checking your emails and then going back to your work, checking your phone and then going back to your work. This is really, really costly in terms of what it actually, the quantifiable costs are to organisations. And we're often oblivious. We've sort of passively accepted, oh, we're distracted and we multitask and that's not how we need to work. That's not optimal for bottom lines and it's not optimal for us as humans. The other thing I was going to say when you were talking is that, yes, we can spend a huge amount of time being distracted, but it's not just the time that we dedicate to reading the article or clicking on the link that our friend or our brother sent us. When we are distracted, and it doesn't matter if it's chatty Cathy that drops by your desk if you're back in the office or talkative Tom. It doesn't matter if it's the ping of your phone. It doesn't matter if it's a ruminating thought. 
whenever we are distracted, it takes the average adult 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back into that deep focus state before the distraction. Yeah. It's called the resumption lag. So think about our days, how they're peppered with pings and dings and all of these things, those temptations that we give into and we go down the digital vortex and rabbit hole, that's costly in and of itself in the time. But that resumption lag in terms of reorienting our attention is just so deadly to our focus. Yeah. Do you think it's gotten worse um, because of working from yep. home? Have people become... Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So before the pandemic, um, a study was done um, by Rescue Time and they wanted to quantify how long adults who are knowledge workers could spend on focused work before a digital distraction diverted their attention. And they, through over 80 and 180 million hours worth of data that they analysed, they found that the average knowledge worker would spend about six minutes of focused attention span before a digital distraction diverted their attention. Research is suggesting that since the pandemic, it is possibly now closer to three to four minutes. Yeah, so we, we have shrinking attention spans. Now, there's a lot of, you may have heard this study suggesting that we have the attention span of a goldfish. Yeah, I was that, say goldfish. Yeah, <laughs> that particular study was debunked. There was no scientific underpinning. It was a PR campaign for Hewlett Packard, and there, there was not a whole lot of rigorous research. Great ad, that. great ad, yeah. Yeah, very effective. It's got a lot of people still talking, and when you Google attention spans, it's one of the first things that comes up. So really good <laughs> SEO there. Um <laughs> But that's not necessarily the case, but there's no denying our attention spans are shrinking. I mean, we experience this. You, you see adults who are reading a magazine and they start tapping and swiping and people who now longer, most research tells us most adults are now multi-screeners. We watch television, but we do so with our phone or our tablet in our hand or our laptop on our laps. So it is radically shifting our sustained focused attention. Hence why I think our FQ is really going to be the determining factor that will set us apart. Just listening yeah. to you, it kind of feels like we need a whole process re-engineering of how we approach work to maximise productivity. And we're still working with old premises, with dark age oh. thinking, and we're not on top of the science and we don't understand what is really affecting our corporate bottom line. So I think totally. we, we, we're pointing in one direction and actually we need to be looking somewhere very different in terms of the behaviours that are required to change productivity and therefore change profitability. Yep. So in the book I talk about, we have to develop what I call neuroproductivity principles. So we have to start to understand how our brain is designed to work but in this digital hybrid distributed space we're part of. And one of the things I often say to teams is that we are designed to work in what I now call a digital dash, a sprint. We're not biologically designed to work for long stretches of time. We never have, but this is particularly amplified if we're on video calls, if we're doing a lot of work on a screen. Our bodies have something called an ultradian rhythm and our ultradian rhythm means we go through peaks and troughs roughly every 90 minutes. This is baked into our biology. We can't shift it. We have to work with that. So we are designed to work in a sprint. Then we have to do something restorative or we have to do some more shallow, what Cal Newport talks about, shallow work, something less cognitively taxing. Then we can resume some of our deep focused work again. 
But if we do not take the break, if we do not rest, if we do not do something restorative in that trough period, our next peak will be significantly shorter and significantly lower in terms of our productivity. Now, these aren't complicated, complex things that we have to shift. It's just different operational cadences and different ways of working, um, again, that work with our brain and our body. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. So if you were entering the workforce today, knowing what you know and having gone through what you've personally gone through, what would you tell your younger self coming into the workforce around how to how to have digital work for you rather than be your your enemy? I think it would be establishing those digital guardrails, so coming up with those borders and boundaries um, and sticking to them. It's really hard to apply these retrospectively. For a lot of people, these are really entrenched habits, and especially during the pandemic, um, we know Microsoft data tells us that we've seen a 42% increase in communication tools. Sadly, 28% of these are happening outside regular work hours. We're seeing what they're calling the triple peak productivity day. So we used to see two productivity humps, one around 10 a.m. in the morning and one around 3 to 4 p.m. We're now seeing a third hump, a third peak between 10 and 11 o'clock at night. People are working for longer periods of time. They're not taking adequate breaks. So I think establishing those boundaries, um, working, you know, working with our brain and body. One of the key things that I'm sharing with a lot of corporate teams at the moment, and this is what I think is the, the silver lining of the pandemic for knowledge workers, particularly knowledge workers, um, and I will acknowledge it's a privileged position for knowledge workers, is that we are now longer um, bound to the nine to five workday in the office five days a week. We have, and people, employees are wanting schedule flexibility. They want flexibility around when they work. We can start to align one of our biological markers, something called our chronotype. And our chronotype dictates when we're most alert and focused and when we naturally want to fall asleep. It's determined by a gene, our PER3 gene. We cannot shift it, but it changes throughout our lifespan. So we're either early birds, we're focused, we tend to be more alert and have that focused attention early in the morning, or we're middle birds, where we tend to be more alert and focused in the middle of the day, or we're the night owls. Depending on your role and other obligations that you might have to your team or your colleagues or your clients, we've now got far greater locus of control over when we work. We can start to align our work days with our chronotype. We can do the heavy lifting. If we're the early bird, we can do that heavy lifting, mentally challenging work earlier in the day and try to shift our meetings and checking emails to the latter part of the day or the afternoon. So we can start to recalibrate and work with our bodies. And that has huge impacts on productivity and well-being. The last thing I would tell my younger self is that you've got to switch off. You're just not designed both professionally and personally to be on all of the time. I don't know about you, but I have my best ideas, not in an Excel spreadsheet, not in my inbox. They come in the shower. Or they come when I go walk. for a swim, yeah. go for a run. Yes. Good old fashioned days of going in a plane with no Wi-Fi. We would daydream. We are designed to switch off. When we, when we daydream, it's called the default mode network. We turn off our prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain, and our mind meanders. We come up with a genius solution to a problem that we spent months agonizing over. That does not happen when we're on, when we're doing, when we're processing, when we're working. So we have to start to um, reconceptualize 
Rest as a responsibility, not as a reward. Rest is something that is absolutely integral to our performance and our well-being, not as something that we save up for our annual leave or we do on a Sunday afternoon when we've collapsed at three o'clock. It has to be baked into our days. Yeah, absolutely. So true. Judith, yeah. what about what about you? What would you tell your younger self? Well, I would tell my if I looking back at my long, younger self a long time ago, I would I I know that one technology is important. So if I was advising my younger self or a younger person coming in, I'd say, okay, use technology for education and connection. Though mm. that's where it's really important because you're coming into the work environment and you need to connect and that you're going to be able to do that through technology, LinkedIn and those types and for connection. Um, but schedule it like I'm a scheduler. So yeah. I'd be going, okay, you only have so many times, so many hours in a day. So schedule the usage of your technology when you're going to use it and use it as a tool and limit your social technology to your close friends and family. You don't need 50 million people on Instagram unless you're an influencer and you don't need to be flicking through it every time right unless that's a, you know because that's a, that's your social bit and limit that as well so why do you need to be looking at social things during the week if you're working do it on the weekends schedule it do it then and make sure it's exactly like um, what Christy said is that you've got to make time for yourself and that doesn't mean using your weekend for your technology choices, <laughs> it means, you know, and um, watching that's Netflix. <laughs> that's right, watching Netflix. You, you just got to use it for what it's originally meant yeah. to be for, not for what the marketers want it for. You use it for what it's, and that's connection and education. And yeah. what is it that I'm looking at? If I'm not, if I'm looking at something and it's not a value to me, what am I looking at it for? If it's you just get sucked in. That's the thing. You get you sucked, sucked in before you know it. You know, and that's what all these apps are designed to do. You kind of start looking at a dress and all of a sudden an hour has passed <laughs> and you've been scrolling through this <laughs> women's clothing site and you kind of and you haven't bought anything and you're not gonna buy anything, but an hour has passed. You get yep. sucked into this vortex and um and it's so seductive and, and it I is and even as something um and it's no accident, again, this has been very carefully designed by um, neuroscientists and psychologists who are working in the back engine of these app development places. Um, the use of color, um, you, you know, the, the color icons, if you've noticed over recent years, most of the big platforms, Google, Netflix, Instagram, have all changed the colors of their icons. We know so much from psychology about what colors are alluring and captivating. Um, and so we get drawn in. Um, and a really, really simple tool is that when you know you're going down the digital vortex, turn your phone to grayscale. I'm the first to tell you that scrolling Instagram or LinkedIn is really boring in black and white. Um, <laughs> you know, the fact that that our notification bubbles are red. Red is a psychological trigger for urgency, danger, importance. Would we go feel compelled on a Saturday afternoon to check our emails if it was baby pink or sky blue? Possibly not. That's a really so good it's, point. <laughs> yeah, it, they, all these really subliminal, Psychology. really sneaky techniques that they've done to 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 literally lure us into that um, digital vortex. It's no accident. Um, another really simple strategy, if, if self-regulation or self-control is hard as it is for many of us, raising my guilty hand here, log out of your social media um, apps. 
Um, yes, you probably will be able to log back in, but we're creating some friction. We're creating some intermediary steps. Remove your tech temptations off the home screen of your phone or keep them off the desktop. Again, yes, you can still locate them, but we're creating some more steps to make it a bit more friction so we just don't so easily go down that vortex. Yeah, I think it's the really, other thing really... about that is that what's interesting is, is with all this, everything that's on digital, the other thing that um, would, I probably would say to someone is also you got to watch what you put on there. So, oh. <laughs> you know, all all those things that you're putting on there, and I know from a, and this is a whole nother episode, but from a recruitment point of view, you know, what you what you put out there is what will be seen. And that could affect a lot of things. But the other, what worries me is the, um, is, is using it so much that then you're also, you're putting yourself out there for hackers and scammers and, mm -hmm. and you know, it, anything else. It's, yeah, a, that's it's a kind whole, of a- That's a whole other issue. A whole other thing. That's a massive issue. <laughs> a whole yeah. other thing. <laughs> I refer to that as our digital DNA. We are cultivating with every single post message that we're creating. So yes, from a recruitment perspective, we have to be very, very mindful from an employment perspective. You know, we can't be- commenting or posting disparaging things online um, but we find again it is designed to draw us in and the algorithm works in such a way that it is knowing exactly what bespoke content to suggest next on social media platforms now because as humans we have a negativity bias it's what's helped us helped us to evolve as a species we tend to click on the negative stories. We tend to click on the doom and gloom. We're calling and so, it angertainment yeah. at the moment. Angertainment <laughs> is our new expression because we're seeing yes. in the industry I work in um, yes. a lot of negative press around electric bikes, electric scooters, and it's all angertainment. It's all yeah. Yeah, it's not healthy. Yeah. It's not but even real. Well, yeah, and we fuel that algorithm. And again, we get served up more and more of this content that has a really negative impact on our um, mental health. You know, we're, we're seeing um, people say to me, but I used to read newspapers. It's not really that different reading the online news. It's vastly different. You don't have mobile phone footage of a, you know, tragic car accident or a, a global emergency or a, a devastating, um, you know, a, a event, um, a tragic global event. These mm -hmm. are now, we've got raw footage that is shared on social media platforms and digitally disseminated. So we are, again, the, these are all micro stresses, but they really do impact us and we are fueling the beast for want of a better word. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. And it's kind well, of like you just almost have to say to yourself while you're doing it, it has to be a lot of self-awareness when you yeah. want to detox to just say, okay, do I really need to read this or do I really need to watch this? What point? And just continually reminding ourselves you know, time is valuable and don't waste it. And, you know, really this is not helping. So why, why read it? Why, you know, move on, go outside. <laughs> Judith, I think, I, I think that really hits the nail on the head, Judith. I think it's really about, we have to take responsibility ourselves for how we fill our day. And, and it requires us to have better boundaries so that we can control it rather than have it control us and our lives. And it all comes down to personal responsibility and just like we have our exercise regimes and how we do other things in our lives to create balance, we now have to actively start thinking about when's the last time I went outside? When did I stand up and have a walk? 
Did I go outside and, and pat the dog? Whatever it is to just have those breaks. Otherwise, it'll it'll take control of, or it already is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it, it, we, have it? To, we have to actively take control of it. Yeah. And I um, I was wrapping up the end of my book, doing the final edits, and a girlfriend invited me out to a coffee. And I said, I can't, I'm too busy. I've, I've got a hard deadline. She said, Christy, you need, a, you, you need a break. You talk about taking piccolo breaks, which I call micro breaks. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I will come for a quick coffee. I went and she turned up late and I was agitated because I've got this finite period of time and as serendipity <laughs> would have it, I met a lady who was sitting at the table next to me and we struck up a conversation. This conversation completely changed my life. We did the, the normal informal um, things that you do and I said, what do you do for work? And she said, I work in palliative care. And she had worked in palliative care for 30 years, which I just think in and of itself is remarkable. Wow. And I don't know if either of you have read Bronnie Ware's book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. No. So Bronnie no. Ware was also a palliative care nurse and it's a very well-known book. And um, Bronnie Ware interviewed the, 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 the people who were, were dying and she started to identify five themes. And I asked this palliative care nurse who I met informally and I said, I, do you see the five regrets of the dying? She said, yes, we most certainly do. They're predictable patterns. She leaned forward and she said, but Christy, there's a sixth one creeping in. I said, what is it? And she said, tragically, I'm treating people at the final stages of life in their 40s and 50s. And she said, they are saying to me, I wish I spent less time on my phone. I wish I spent less time on technology. Wow. We will we will see this. And as you've said, the technology we all use and love has been deliberately designed to rob us of our two most important human resources, our time and our attention. They are things that we will never, ever get back. It's and if we true. don't take back control, if we don't put these boundaries in place, we will get sucked in as we are to the digital vortex. I mean, you only need to pull up at a set of traffic lights these days. What are a lot of people doing? Like we we just don't know how to fill the void. You wait at your favourite baristas for a coffee. What is everybody doing? You get in a lift with people. We're not daydreaming, are we? We're not, we don't. We're not, we're not finding the spaces in between where the magic can happen because we're filling every single space and we're yep. addicted to having every single space filled Whereas the magic happens in between the spaces when we stop. Yeah. How many times have says, you texted your friend and you've gone back and forth 20 times on a text and it's a friend where you could have just easily picked up the phone and yeah. said, Hey, digital, can we talk? Can yeah. we talk? <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> But it is, and they're, they're, they're digital habits that we've all adopted. Um, and in our defence, we are the first generation of people who are figuring out these digital norms. You know, there's no rule book, there's no guidebook. We're making these decisions on the fly. And the technology is changing at such rapid rates. Um, we have something in the online world, it's called the digital penetration rate. And it describes how many years it takes a technology to penetrate to 50 million global users. So do you remember when we had dial-up internet? Well, yes. <laughs> dial-up internet, believe it or not, took around 13 years until 50 million people had it. Oh, Facebook wow. took four years. YouTube took two years. Angry Birds took 35 days. A couple of years ago, there was a trend called Pokemon Go. Yes, I remember that. Yes, where people would walk around locations and use Having their accidents phones. accidents and incidents as well. Yes. At least they were getting yes. out. At least they were getting out. Well, in one way. Multitasking. Um, hmm, yeah. Yes. <laughs> And what we know is that that took one to two days to reach penetration rate. Wow.
there was a death by suicide that was streamed on a social media platform oh, last year and then was repurposed into a whole lot of social media content that secondary and primary school children consumed. It took a matter of hours until 50 million people consumed it. So the digital world's evolving and changing at rapid rates. But as I've said a couple of times today, our brain and our body haven't. We 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 are really quite basic. I say this with all due respect to someone who studies neuroscience. We're not complicated. Yeah. We we cannot shift our neurobiology. We are bound by these biological blueprints. So we have to take back control because if we don't, we're already seeing it, I think. We, we've got you know increasing rates of depression and rates of suicide in young people. And technology is certainly contributing, not in the direct causal way that we think. It's the displacement effect. They're not sleeping. They're not moving. They're not connecting like they not used to. Not creating relationships. Not, yeah. not creating intimate relationships, which is yeah. critical. Yeah, and, it, and that's applying to us as adults. Um, and, and this is why I often say to people, hybrid is hard. Anyone who tells you that hybrid is the silver bullet and it's going to solve all our problems, it's not. There are nuances, there are complications with hybrid. And just on that point of real connection, a study was done and they wanted to compare what happened inside the brain when we connected with real people in a real physical intimate space compared to text-based connection. What this study conclusively showed us was that our brain made far more less oxytocin. So oxytocin is the love hormone. It's the social bonding hormone. We made far less with text-based interactions than we did in person. Our cortisol levels were still increased when we were on text-based interactions as opposed to being with real people. So we are designed. We've, I think that's the common thread through today's conversation. We hardwired, biologically designed to connect and be with people. We cannot replicate that. Um, I don't think we will replicate that in the metaverse. I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I don't think that the online world is a, a, a replica, a suitable alternative for real connection that I we need as humans. At the end of the day, a lot of online is an escape and fundamentally, we need to all get better about being with ourselves and being with what is, yeah. not with the escape, whatever that is for us. And I often, yeah. That takes I, hard work. That takes counselling. That takes support. That takes a bit of inner, inner dialogue. Yeah. And it also takes education at the school levels because yeah. if that doesn't happen at the early ages... And if they're, they're not, you can't just all of a sudden educate and start giving kids, you know, technology and here, here, watch this instead of having a conversation with them, then yeah. they, and then all of a sudden they get out of high school and they get into the work world and you want them to change the way that they're doing things. It's going to be a lot harder. So if it doesn't happen at the young ages into high school, that's where the habits start. That's where the habits got to happen there. And, you know, yeah. they're. They're going to be, well, they already know that, you know, things like spelling and writing, you know, that kind of stuff has deteriorated. Yeah. <laughs> you know, speech has deteriorated because of that technology and shortcuts and things like that. So um, it's a tough road ahead, I think, for schools and the and the curriculums that they're going to have to put forward to make sure that the kids are getting that education about how to communicate. and not sort of cotton wooling them as well yeah and, you know so that they are getting out and doing their exercises and mm -hmm. not just spending the whole time in a schoolyard 
with their phones. <laughs> yeah. So I often talk about with schools about digital well-being and digital hygiene, and these are skills that we need to explicitly teach, and they need it needs to be a partnership, a collaboration between schools and parents. And there's a lot of finger pointing. Parents are saying, "Will you give them a school provided device, or it's on the stationary list? You need to teach this." And parents, are, sorry, schools are saying, "Well, you're the one at home, not supervising and not putting boundaries in place, and they're up to one a.m. on their devices and coming to school and falling asleep in class." So we really need a united front. Um, and we need to be, as I said, explicitly teaching these skills. I'm not a huge proponent for blanket phone bans. Yes, kids need firm boundaries. We need to establish those. But if we just mandate blanket bans, we don't actually, we bypass the opportunity to get them to start to learn these self-regulation. Well, self-regulation, self-regulation. Yep. I was just listening to you explain it about the school environment, but you lift that conversation and you plonk it into a work context. Yep. It's exactly the same, isn't it? We've got yep. new responsibilities as leaders to help create those boundaries and to create new KPIs and new yep. etiquette and new things that are acceptable and that aren't acceptable. And we all yep. need to take responsibility in that. It's a partnership, just as you've described it for school. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's creating those digital guardrails. I think if there was one thing that teams need to do to make hybrid work work or to make remote work work, um, we have to articulate what are the accepted digital norms, practices and principles? What's an acceptable internal email response rate? When do I use Teams chats? Um, do I have a communication escalation plan so that when there is a time critical, urgent issue that I have one communication mode and I suggest it's a good old fashioned phone call. Um, so people can switch off and we can start to be more intentional about how we're using technology, but none of these guardrails work if leaders aren't role modeling it. You can have the best guardrails and policies and practices, but if you've got leaders who are still sending 11 p.m. emails, who are sending chats at all hours, who are creating virtual meetings outside of regular hours, these guardrails fall flat on their face. So it really comes back to our leaders um, being good role models and also developing this knowledge set about, you know, how do we work in a way that works for our brains and our bodies? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Christy, it's been an absolute delight. I'm sure we could keep chatting forever. In fact, we'd love to have you back for another conversation because there's about love five love. other conversations I think <laughs> we could have around this. Um, and Dear Digital, We Need to Talk is available now and um, get yourself a copy. It's going to be an awesome read. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate it, ladies. For more information about Every Step and our guests, head to everysteppodcast.com. To be notified of new podcasts, please subscribe via your favourite listening platform. And, of course, follow us on social media and direct message us to share your ideas about guests or topics.